are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. Um, just a reminder, real, real quick, we, you know, we added, uh, it's our second week of three services, and, and we've, it's gone pretty well. Some people showed up again at the 8 o'clock, which is awesome. Um, not you, of course, but some other people. And, uh, and really what that does is it creates space for us uh, because we've gotten so full in our other two gatherings. Um, and what I'm learning, even just from observing here a little bit ago, it creates space for us in our other two gatherings right up front, all right? Because none of y'all want to be up here. And so just by way of consideration, maybe you pray and say, Lord, would you have me sit down front one time? So that when somebody comes in late, particularly if it's a guest, they don't have to come right up here, all right? No pressure on that. Just take that for what it's worth. Um, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that we had a newborn, and so I was tired. And really, I didn't, I didn't know what I was talking about because I thought I was tired, but the tiredness hadn't settled in yet. I'm really tired now, okay? So who knows what's going to happen this morning. But Matthew chapter 18, all right? That's where we're going to go. Uh, we're preaching through the gospel according to Matthew. Bill started a conversation last week in uh, chapter 18. We're going to continue that this morning. We're going to pick it up in 21, verse 21. Um, but typically when we come in here on Sunday morning, we open the word of God together and, and typically we're answering a question of, of what should I do when I sin, right? We're asking God and asking his word, what should I do when I sin? But for the last two weeks, we've been asking a different question is what do we do when we are the ones who are sinned against? What do we do when we are the ones who are sinned against? And, and what I want us, what we're going to see this morning from Jesus is that what he has to say to us about what we should do when people sin against us is not difficult to understand, right? It's not complex. It's actually very easy to understand. The, the challenge, it is, it is not easy to apply to our lives. And so we're going to look at that this morning together. Starting in verse 21, Matthew chapter 18 says, Then Peter came up and said to him, so he's talking to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. So if you weren't here with us last week or you forgot, right before Peter asked Jesus this question, Jesus has just given his disciples a four-step process for what to do when we are sinned against, particularly by a brother or a sister within the church. He gives us four steps. And so when he finishes... Peter jumps in there and he's asking for some clarification, okay? And what we need to understand uh, about this is, is the teaching that Jesus was giving them on forgiveness, it would have been foreign to Jesus' disciples, right? So they lived in a culture, and we covered this back in the spring, probably feels like forever ago, when we covered the Sermon on the Mount in the spring, you want to remember that? Nobody, perfect. All right, so back in the spring, we covered the Sermon on the Mount and we, we saw, and he said, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And what that meant was the, the general idea for the follower of God would be you live a life of equal retribution. So whatever you do to me, I will do it back to you. And even that was a gracious shift from the culture in the world around them. See, the world around them lived in a different culture, not eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. It was, it was whatever you do to me, I'm going to do that back to you plus some. And that's not just a first century way of thinking, is it? Right? That's the natural disposition of the human heart. Uh, it's what takes place in my home on a daily basis. Right? Uh, this week, I legitimately, when you become a parent, you don't you just have no category for the conversations you're going to have. And I had a conversation this week and I asked my son, I said, why did you tackle your brother and punch him in the throat? I said those words. And his answer was, because he pushed me, right? 
It would make sense in his head. He's like, well, you push me, then I'm going to run you down. I'm going to slam your feet, and I'm going to punch you in the throat. Okay, that's what he was thinking. Um, the natural response of the human heart is to, to lash out when we feel wrong and to do it plus interest, right? But take back what you took from me plus a little bit. And then here comes Jesus teaching that when a brother sins against you, you go after them, you pursue them, but not to seek revenge, but to take back what they took from you. You pursue them with a heart of mercy. You pursue them with this heart of compassion and the hope that there will be reconciliation. That because you go after them in their sin and when they've sinned against you, because you pursue them, there will be a homecoming for them back into the community of faith. And so Jesus is teaching on, on forgiveness and the disciples have questions. And of course, Peter's our guy, right? He stands up for us and speaks. Verse 21, Peter says, Lord, how many times are we supposed to forgive? And then he throws out a number, seven times, right? And, and what Peter says is significant here because most rabbinic teaching at this time for, the, for a faithful Jew would be that if the same offense were committed against you multiple times, that a faithful Jew would be required to forgive them three times, right? It's, it's playoff baseball season. Three strikes and you're out. That's what's happening here. So a requirement for forgiveness three times, but then after, on the fourth time, no more. You're done to me, right? We're done. Uh, we have something similar in our culture it's a little less gracious. We give them one time. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, what? Shame on me. We don't, you don't get another shot. You get one time with us in our culture, and then it's done. But the expectation in this culture was three times, which meant that Peter, in his response, he was being super gracious, right? Not three, but seven. So I'm going to double it plus one. And some commentar- commentaries give Peter a hard time here, and they're saying that Peter is you know, he's sucking up or he's being the teacher's pet or something like that. Or he's trying to be impressive to Jesus or the other disciples. But I think what is more likely is that Peter is growing. He's learning from his mistakes, right? You remember back in, in chapter 16, when Jesus, for the first time, he tells his disciples directly, he says, I'm gonna die. Going to Jerusalem, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna be handed over and I'm gonna be raised on the third day. And how's Peter respond? He says, no way, not on my watch. Like it's not gonna happen. That's what Peter says. That's not the English standard version. That's the Clint standard version. Okay, that's a paraphrase. But that's essentially what happens there. No way, not gonna happen. And then Jesus responds out. He says, get behind me, Satan. You think that would have like stuck in, in Peter's mind a couple chapters later? Like here he's having another in, you know, interaction with Jesus and he goes, it's not happening again. I'm not, I'm not gonna be the get behind me guy uh, anymore. So here in chapter 18, I don't think Peter's sucking up. I think he's learning from his mistakes. So he shoots for the moon, right? It's three. So he goes, Okay, he says we should do this. How many times should we do it, Lord? Seven? Like he throws seven out there. Look how Jesus responds, verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times. Okay, so we have to understand what the disciples are probably thinking when Peter threw out the number seven. They were thinking, Peter, this guy, he thinks he can walk on water and he's gonna think that we should be, we forgive people seven times. No way, right? They're just like, oh, Peter, you know, you're ridiculous. Jesus says, I don't say to you seven times. And they're like, we knew it. Right, Peter, you know, he's always jokes on you again. But then Jesus finishes the sentence. He says, not seven times, but 77 times. And so if you have a different translation, your Bible might say 77. It might say 70 times seven. And that's not a mistake. What this is, is this word that Jesus uses, he kind of like mashes two different Greek words together. And there's some debate. Does he mean 77 or does he mean 70 times seven, which is a big difference, right? Um, Those two numbers. But it, it, it really doesn't matter in this passage because what's happening is, is Peter, or Jesus isn't saying to Peter, no, 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 your number's too low. You need to get it up. 77 or 490. He's not saying get your number up. What he's saying is there is no number, right? 
That's what he's teaching here. Um, the number seven in the Bible is the number of completion. So this is either the number of completion next to the number of completion, which is a lot, <coughs> infinite, or the number of completion times the number of completion with a zero on the end of it. Again, the point is that there is no number at all. It's like if you've ever been to a wedding, you probably heard 1 Corinthians 13 read, right? It says what? Love is patient and love is kind. It doesn't boast and it isn't arrogant. And love, it says, keeps no record of wrongs, Okay. So Jesus is not teaching here that we should all keep these little ledger books in our back pocket and interact with our spouse. And first couple of months, years are fine, depending on how, you know, how much you wrong each other. And you're just keeping track of it. Everything's great. You're extending forgiveness. And then you have that conversation one day. You say, honey, it's been a good couple of months. Just want to let you know you're at 485, okay? <laughs> or 78, six or whatever. Like you're getting close. Like that's not what he's teaching. Um, and, and where Peter thought he was being super generous and saying seven Jesus is saying to his disciples, he's saying to you and me, those of us who would follow after him with our lives, we are to forgive without keeping count. To forgive without keeping count. Basically, Peter asked the question, how many times should I forgive my brother? And Jesus says, yes. And, and if we could just be honest, that's, that's what I meant when I said, this is easy to understand. Forgive without keeping count. And yet, it's incredibly difficult to apply to our lives, is it not? This is, this is complex, right? It's challenging. Let me, let me read you this to kind of draw us into the, the challenge of what I think Jesus is teaching here. A guy named Scott Sauls writes this. He says, according to Jesus, if we want to be disciples, like if you want to be a Christian, then we must not place any limits on the number of times that we are willing to forgive those who offend, insult, injure, persecute, and betray us. This includes smaller, innocuous offenses. It also includes greater offenses the ones that feel like the ripping of our flesh and the crushing of our spirits. Forgiving others as God in Christ has forgiven us is gutsy and it's gut-wrenching. It's courageous and it's terrifying. It is redemptive and messy. It's breathtaking and exhausting in what it is going to require of us. He says the practice of forgiveness is no easy endeavor. Again, that's what I meant when I said this is not easy to, to apply. It's easy to understand, but not even close to being easy to put into practice in our lives. Especially when you consider, guys, some of the egregious and horrific ways that people are sinned against in this world. Some of you have experienced this, and, and, and you're wrestling right now with the tension of what do I, Jesus says forgive, but, but how could that be possible? Right? And even if you haven't been, you know, um, dealt with some significant, you know, deep trauma in your lives, um, or in your life, like, which praise God for that. It, Surely, the question that we have is, surely Jesus isn't saying we should forgive everyone, and especially if they continue to sin against us, right? Um, and and he's, actually, he is. He says, forgive without keeping count. And, and this is a, a, a beautiful passage, but it's incredibly complex. And I think the beautiful thing about this passage is that, that Jesus knows that this will be difficult for us. He knows that it's going to be difficult for his disciples. He knows they're going to have these questions. He knows that we have these questions. And, and so the way that he kind of enters into that difficulty is he tells a story. Right, a story called a parable. It's been a while since we covered a parable. We did it back in Matthew 13. Um, a parable is a Greek word that means uh, two, a, 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 wow, I told you I was tired. It's a mashing together of two Greek words that means to cast alongside. The idea is that Jesus is trying to create clarity around what he's saying about forgiveness by telling this story and not create ambiguity about it. It's not like a, a random story. You go, hey, what do you think that means? No, he's trying to help us see something very specific 
about forgiveness. And he tells a story about money. More specifically, a story about debt. Um, And what he's doing here is he's trying to draw us into the depth of what it's like to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. This is what it actually looks like. This is the life that Jesus came, lived, and died to invite you into. Uh, And we see this here in this parable. Let's look at this starting in verse 23. Jesus says, therefore, again, therefore is connecting this idea of saying, I don't say seven, I say 77. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Okay, so Jesus starts the parable the way he starts several other ones. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like. Again, he's painting a picture for us and telling us this story is giving you some insight into what it actually means to live your life under the rule and reign of King Jesus. This is what the kingdom's like. This is what it's like to live for and with God. And there's a couple of key words in the, those first two verses that we just read. So you have your own Bible, maybe you underline, you underline these two words. If it's our Bible, don't do that, all right? But um, two words here, settle accounts and owed. He says settle accounts and owed. Remember, he's talking about forgiveness. And what Jesus is saying is that when someone sins against you, it creates a debt in the relationship. So where you were at right standing, now when you sin against each other, then you create a debt-debtor relationship. And forgiveness, what he's saying, is like settling up with someone who owes you something. All right, so that's kind of how he establishes it. And then at the end of verse 24, he says there's a servant who is a part of this kingdom, this king who's settling accounts, who owed money. So there's a servant who owed his king 10,000 talents, right? So as soon as Jesus said that, everyone listening would have immediately realized this is not something that could have actually happened. So the, the first part of that story, they're dialed in because this is the culture in the world they lived in. They lived in kingdoms, they had to pay taxes, right? So they lived in that space. But when he said 10,000 talents, they would have known this is not an actual scenario. Here's the reason why. In this culture, a talent was the largest unit of measurement, but it wasn't like a numerical value, like infinity. It was uh, a way to measure weight, okay? And so what they're saying is you owe weight. You owe money that we're measuring and how much it weighs, okay? Um, And so uh, a talent was the largest unit of measurement. And this time for a servant, like this story, or a day laborer, uh, it would have taken them 20 years of wages to earn a talent, all right, so 20 years of working is one talent. It's a very large number for them in their culture. Um, a modern day example, if you earn $15 an hour and you work for a year, then you earn 31,000 and change. Okay, so 20 years of that, $625,000, one talent. All right, that's what is happening here. But Jesus doesn't just say this guy owes a talent. All right, how many did he owe? 10,000 talents which would be $6.25 billion, all right? Now, I know that we live in a world where we have a category for billionaires. That's a very new thing, right? They did not have a category for billionaires. So Jesus is still not saying, hey, he owed $6.25 billion. He's saying he owed an unimaginable debt, an unpayable debt. I read in one commentary that 10,000 talents, when Jesus tells the story, is more than the entire GDP of all of Israel. Right, so what he's saying is, this is an unimaginable and unpayable debt. It would take this one guy 200,000 years of working to pay off the debt. An unimaginable, unpayable debt. Look what happens next, verse 25. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had for payment to be made. That was normal in this culture. If you couldn't pay your debts, then you would become a slave. Verse 26, so the servant fell on his knees 
imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. So remember, Jesus is talking about forgiveness and he's saying that when someone sins against you, it creates debt in the relationship and in order for the relationship to be put back, they have to pay you what they owe, right? That's why he talks about money. We have something similar in our culture. Someone wrongs you, then they owe you an apology. Think you owe me an apology. It's this idea of creating this debt. And what's ironic is, is what happens in verse 26. So he, he gets drugged in front of the king. He says, hey, pay your debt. Again, unimaginable, unpayable debt. And he goes, he pleads with them. Just be patient with me. I'll pay you back, right? He says, I'm good for it. And what do you think the disciples would have thought when Jesus said that? No, you can't. You're not ever going to be able to, it would take you 200,000 years of working and never spend a dime of that money just to, it's impossible, right? Look at verse 27. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant releases him and forgave him of the debt. Um, the servant here is offered forgiveness for the debt that he owed. Again, this unimaginable, unpayable debt. And there's two words that he uses to describe it. He says he releases him and he forgave him. What's interesting about the original language here is that the word for release and the word for forgive or forgave uh, is very, they're very similar. So even other places in the New Testament, they're translated to let go or to leave. Each of those are translated the same way. So it's almost like he were to say that um, he, he let the master let him go because he let go of the debt. That's pretty much what's happening here, to let it go. Um, and I'm doing my best not to make a frozen reference here, right? Um, and, and, and I will not make one unless I can't hold it back anymore. That's the only one, okay, I promise. Um, to let him go and let go of the debt. Remember what debt we're talking about here. Unimaginable number. 200,000 years of working to earn your way back. And even then, the point is not that. If you work for 200,000, somehow you could stay alive for that long. The point is you can't do it. Jesus says the master releases him of that debt, meaning he no longer holds it over him, right? The point is that the distance that was created by the debt in the relationship, the distance and the separation is absorbed by the king, right? And I know we haven't rest, read the rest of the parable, but spoiler alert, we're not the king in this story. We are the ones who are indebted to him. And Jesus is saying that this is what is true about us, that he, or that he is saying that we have been forgiven of an unimaginable and unpayable debt. And in verse 27, he tells us why. Verse 27, he says, why? Because the master has pity on him. Now, this is not a great translation for us because in our culture, when we have pity on someone, we feel sorry for them, right? Um, almost every other time in the New Testament, this word that's translated pity here is translated compassion, right? It's the Greek word that literally means for your bowels to ache. It's not because you had some undercooked chicken, okay? That's not what this is talking about. The idea is that your insides yearn that you have a deep affection, deep in your guts, in your bones, affection for someone that would lead you to do anything for them. This is the exact same word, compassion, that Jesus uses in the story of the prodigal son. Luke 15, you know the story, story about a father who has two sons. The younger one wants nothing to do with his father, so he severs the relationship. He leaves home, takes his inheritance early. I don't want nothing to do with you, dad. I just want your stuff. And he goes and he blows it all to the point where he has nothing. And he's living on the streets and he decides, I would be better off as a slave for my father than living the way I am now. So he musters up the courage to come back to his dad. He's rehearsing this apology. And the Bible says that as he comes home, as he's getting on the horizon, the dad's on the front porch waiting for him. And he sees him. And the Bible says he's filled with 
compassion, same word, not pity. He didn't feel sorry. He, this deep affection, so much so that he couldn't sit and wait for him to make it back. So the father runs out to him, right? And he, as he gets there before the son can even mutter the apology that he's been rehearsing, the father embraces him and takes him into his arm and kisses him. And they bring him home and they throw the biggest party ever and say, my, my son who was gone is back. That is what Jesus is saying is in the heart of the father toward you and me. That even though you and I, as a result of our sin, are indebted to him with absolutely no way to pay him back because of his compassion toward us, because of his mercy toward us, he releases us from that debt and he invites us into right relationship with him. That is what forgiveness means. It means he no longer holds it over us. It means you and I are no longer trapped underneath the weight of our sin and shame. And that's not because it wasn't a big deal to him or that it didn't cost him anything. It costs him everything. Look at Colossians 2. It'll be on the screen. It says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having what? Forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The Bible says the record of debt is canceled. What debt? Unimaginable debt unpayable debt, 200,000 years of you working, you will never get there, gone, canceled. Why? Not because we did anything, because of his compassion, because of his affection toward us. And the how that this record of debt is canceled is a huge deal to God. Is the only way how is the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We are fully deserving of death, but he takes the punishment that we deserve. Maybe the most important word in this passage is in verse 13 says, all our sin is canceled. All of it. Past sin, present sin, future sin, all of it. Nailed to the cross. The record of debt is canceled. Right? Remember, this isn't a story about what happens when we sin. This is a story about what happens and how much forgiveness we should offer when people sin against us. Look at verse 28. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and he went and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So this scene starts out just like the first scene, right? There's a debt that's owed, there's a promise to pay and there's a pleading for patience. The only difference is the amount of debt that's owed. So instead of 10,000 talents, 100 denarii is owed. And, and a denarii was a day's wage for that late, same labor. So this is what they would earn in one day. So if you had 100 of those, you're looking at about 20 weeks of work. And at $15 an hour, that's 12 grand, all right? Not an insignificant amount of money at, by any means, um, but not an unpayable amount of money, right? It's not impossible to pay it back. And what Jesus is highlighting here is the posture of the man who had just been forgiven. That's what he wants us to see. Because you have a debt that would have taken lifetimes to repay and is forgiven, and a debt that would have taken months to re repay is withheld. That forgiveness is withheld. Look what happens, verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. So here's why. Because, just, ima just imagine, and this is not a great illustration, but I think it'll draw us into it. So just say you get a phone call from your mortgage lender the bank or whoever, and they call you in, and you don't know what it's about, and you're worried. You're like, what the heck? We're not gonna have a place to live, they're gonna take the house, whatever, and you get in there, and the news is your mortgage has been paid. 
pretty good day, right? Nothing. This is a, I'm, I'm struggling from some response right now. We got dead faces on that, all right? Everyone's, you know, I was the one who's supposed to be tired, not y'all. So you walk in, your mortgage is canceled. Do you not walk out of that office with a little bit more pep in your step? I do, right? Maybe you were going to make a sandwich at home. You're going to swing by Chipotle, right? You're going to Chick-fil-A. You're, lunch on me, right? You feel a little bit lighter than when you walked in, right? And so the expectation then is what if you walked out of the mortgage office and you see a guy who you actually bought lunch for last week and you're broke and you're going home to make a sandwich, but now things are different and, and you, you go, hey man, don't worry about it. Don't worry about that lunch last week. That's the expectation, right? Because you have just been forgiven of hundreds and thousands of dollars. Your you know, $11 burrito bowl is not a problem to me right now. Um, and, and what happens, is, that's not how the story plays out. And so the disciples, when they hear this, they're greatly distressed, right? They went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivers him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt, which is impossible. And, and what's interesting about this word here is delivered to the jailers. There's another Greek word that means like prison guard. This Greek word is used one time in the New Testament and it means torturers. So Jesus' disciples, would have, their ears would have perked up and going, he's talking about eternal punishment. Right? So this idea of forgiveness creates this debt-debtor relationship, and we've been forgiven of much, so when we withhold forgiveness, he's thrown until, back into prison until he can pay everything, which is impossible. It's talking about eternal punishment, and that's the end of the story, right? Super encouraging. And then in verse 35, Jesus gives a one-sentence commentary on this story. He says, okay, so also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart, right? That kind of zaps some energy out of the room a little bit, my guess. Before we talk about what that means for us, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. Jesus is not saying that if we do not forgive others, then he will withhold forgiveness from us. He's not. Um, And I can confidently say that, and the reason why I can confidently say that is because of the order that Jesus tells this story, okay? Because if the man who ran into the guy or man who owed all that money, if he ran into his buddy who owes him 12 grand on the way to the king, he couldn't afford to forgive that debt, could he? If he ran into him on the way, he's going, hey man, I gotta pay my debt. I need you to give me that 12 grand, right? There, he would not be able to afford to forgive the debt. But after, and that's how Jesus tells the story. He runs into him after, which should change everything, right? It should. I mean, you felt the weight of, of when, when life just kind of stacks up on you, right? My guess is most of us have. Life gets a little tight, medical bills or whatever, car breaks down and you gotta, you gotta figure things out. You felt the weight of, of, of how that also seeps into the other places of your life. Uh, it, just, it just robs you of joy. Not just the debt, but it robs you of joy in other places of your life. It's like a million degrees outside, but you got the AC on 80 and you're sweating in your house because it's like, man, I, we gotta, you know, we're tight, things are tight. It robs you of freedom in other areas of your life. And the reason why is because you owe so much. It seeps into every area of your life because when you are in debt, you cannot afford to not collect from everyone who owes you. But this man walks out of the palace having been forgiven of an unimaginable debt and he owed absolutely nothing. Now, it's all paid, accounts settled. So now, as one who has been forgiven, he can now afford to forgive. And church, this is what is true about you as a Christian. 
The unimaginable, unpayable, crushing weight of our sin has been removed from our shoulders because it was taken fully on to Jesus. And we are forgiven of all of our trespasses, past, present, and future, because not of what you and I do, but the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ and because of his mercy and compassion toward us. And Jesus is not saying that if you don't forgive others, then he won't forgive you. The point here is it's evidence, not earning. Our forgiveness of others doesn't earn for us forgiveness from God. Our forgiveness of others is evidence that we have been received or we have received forgiveness from God. We are walking out of the palace, right? The life of the Christian is not earning to get our way in. He says, you are forgiven. The relationship has been restored. There is right standing. Now, live your life from that reality. And that is what creates us a freedom in us to forgive the people around us. Again, remember how Jesus starts this parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like, which means he's showing us what it means to be a Christian. He's saying, this is what it means. This is what it looks like to live your life under the rule and reign of King Jesus, right? That forgiveness is offered to us in Christ and it should transform our heart, which would result in a changed life that would be willing to offer that same love and forgiveness to others that we have received from God. And if you're taking notes, you're like, man, that was too many words, all right? Here's the simple way to say that. Forgiven people forgive people. That's the point of this parable. This is what Jesus is saying. Let me show you this in Colossians chapter three. Colossians three, Paul is picking up on this same idea and he's saying that we live our lives from the palace, not to the palace, but from the palace, being forgiven by God. He says in the beginning of chapter three, he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, meaning you've been forgiven, Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Then he goes into verse five. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Meaning, don't do these things anymore. And then when he gets to this part, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also, what? Must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And again, I am not saying that when we think of the people who hurt us or hurt the people we love, I am not saying that forgiveness is the easy response. It's not. I'm not saying that forgiveness is the natural response because it's not. What I'm saying is that forgiveness is the Christian response. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is what it looks like to live as followers of Jesus in his world under his rule and reign. You know what this story teaches us? What Jesus is telling us about forgiveness when he tells the story, he's telling us that forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Let me tell you what I mean by that. There there will be times where you won't feel like forgiving people who wrong you. Probably most of the time, right? Why? Because they don't deserve it. They haven't asked for forgiveness. They haven't jumped through the hoops that we've set up in our mind for them. They haven't asked for forgiveness. They don't deserve it. So there will be times where we don't um, feel like forgiving the people around us, especially if that sin takes place over and over and over again. But forgiveness isn't a feeling because there will also be times in your life where you don't feel forgiven by God. Most notably because of what we read in verse 26. Did you pick up on this? So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me, I will pay you everything, right? This is how we live our lives. That's what Jesus is pointing us to. We live our lives thinking that that we can do enough right to outdo the wrong that we do to earn our way into God's love and forgiveness. We think, just give me some time. I'll make good on this, right? And Jesus says, no, you can't. 
You cannot do it. You have, been, you have been forgiven of a debt that is unimaginable and unpayable. We think we can earn our way out of our sin because when we drop the ball, we don't feel forgiven, forgiven because we think that our obedience is what earns it in the first place. This shows us that forgiveness isn't a feeling. The command of the scripture on Christians is this. We must forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. So how has he forgiven us? Or why, rather? Because he has compassion for us. Because he feels deeply for us. This is what Paul's talking about in Colossians 3. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones. Right? This idea of put on, it's, it's actually get dressed, is what this means. So there's a, a new wardrobe that we are given as followers of Jesus that we take off the old, put that to death, and you put on then, he says, because you're chosen by God, because you're called to holiness, because you're loved, he says, put on compassionate hearts. This is the new wardrobe for us in Christian, as Christians. We, we have compassion toward people, even the people who wrong us. We put on kindness, and then he says, forgive. Right? He's given us a new wardrobe. We're called to dress different. And because of the undeserved forgiveness that we've been given from God, we should offer undeserved forgiveness to the people around us. This is a beautiful truth, theologically, right? That we're forgiven of of an unimaginable debt. And yet, this is incredibly messy in reality, is it not? It's so complex, right? That we're called to forgive. C.S. Lewis says, everyone says that forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. Um, and let me just clarify, and I don't think I have time for this, but whatever. Um, forgiveness uh, does not mean that the relationship is going to go back to the way it was before. It doesn't. Some sin is so either repeated or, or horrific that forgiving that person does not mean that you're going to be best friends. It just doesn't. Um, it also, forgiveness doesn't mean that you are to put yourself repeatedly in a position to be abused, physically, verbally, emotionally, whatever. Forgiveness doesn't mean that, right? This is something different altogether. Again, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. And, and this isn't just some of us. This is all of us. We have all been wrong. Did you notice when Jesus says, hey, if your brother sins against you, do this? The question they had wasn't, wait a minute, we're gonna sin against each other? The question they had was, okay, how many times should I forgive them? Meaning, what's the limit? And Jesus says, there isn't one. There is not one. And as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. The question that I want to answer with the few minutes that we have left is, what do we do when we don't have compassion toward the people who have wronged us? What should we do? What do we do when we don't want to forgive someone? Because if we're honest, they don't deserve it. We don't have much time for this. Three things. We recognize remember and rest. First thing, recognize. Recognize the ways that we've actually been sinned against. We live in a culture of offense. Everyone's offended about everything all the time. I'm offended, right? Because you walk by me, I'm offended. Being offended and being sinned against is not the same thing. When you're sinned against, you're probably offended, but but just because you're offended doesn't mean that you have been sinned against. And we need to grow in our capacity to to recognize the ways we've actually been uh, sinned against so that we can know when genuine forgiveness is required. We can be offended because of unmet expectations or offended because most of the time we just disagree with someone. You hold a different political opinion than me and I feel like you've sinned against me. No, right? You like the Florida Gators, you haven't sinned against me. Right? Even though it feels that way a lot of time. Church, Jesus has offended a lot of people but he never sinned against them. So just because you disagree doesn't mean they have sinned against you. We need to grow in our capacity to do this. And a lot of this comes from the fact that we believe that we're owed something from the people around, around us. 
Forgiveness is required only when we have been sinned against, not just because someone has even hurt us. And when you're offended, here's what God's word would compel you to do. When you are offended, you ask yourself this question. Can you name it as sin? Can you name it as sin? Have you been lied to? Have you been the victim of someone's idolatry or their envy or their anger or on and on we can go? Can you name it as sin? If you can't, you've probably just been offended. And then you, because a lot of times we feel offended by the, as a result of sin of others toward us, sometimes we feel offended because of the sin that's in us, right? So we need to be able to name it as sin because when you can answer this question, what, what is it sin? What you do is you're replacing the authority in the relationship with what you think and feel and you replace that with what God thinks and feels and what is revealed to us in his word. And when God's word becomes the authority in our relationship, that's when we can walk in the freedom that God has called us into. This is not easy work. It is not easy to lean into the places in our lives where we feel offended or hurt. Again, it's complex. It takes honesty. It takes us getting over that it's not that big of a deal and just sweeping it under the rugs and then living our lives bitter, holding grudges against most of the people around us. This is difficult work, but this is the work that's necessary for us to forgive the way that Jesus says we should forgive, the way that we've been forgiven. That's the first thing. We recognize the ways we've actually been sinned against. The second thing is we remember what God has done for us first. We need to remember what God has done for us first. Again, Jesus tells this story in the order he tells it for a specific reason. Because if the man ran into him on the way to the palace, he could not afford to forgive him, but he runs into him after. The point is that when we are sinned against, we will often be tempted to feel like all we are is the offended one. But in reality, we are first and foremost the offenders against God with an infinite record of debt. And despite the fact that we can do nothing to pay back the debt that we owe, Jesus settles our account. He pays back our debt. And when the starting point for our forgiveness is not all the reasons why they don't deserve it from us, but rather all the reasons why we didn't deserve it from God and yet he's, been, he's given it to us, right? When the starting point is that we've been forgiven of an unimaginable debt by a compassionate and merciful king, then and only then will we be free to forgive, to live our lives the way uh, that Jesus calls us to, to no longer demand from others that they pay us what we owe or what they owe. Last thing is that we rest. And again, this is a big one. We have to rest in the authority of the, of the king. Rest in the reality that our God is just because just like in the story Jesus tells, we live in a kingdom and we have a king who will one day settle accounts. This is why we can forgive people who don't deserve it from us because we have a God who is just, a king who will one day settle accounts. This is the picture that Jesus gives us for forgiveness, right? It is letting people go from their indebtedness to us and releasing them into their indebtedness to God. And church, please hear me on this. This is not us minimizing the sin that's committed against you. In fact, it's the opposite because if all sin is first and foremost a sin against God, then those ledgers that we keep of accounts against everyone else, we can actually afford now to lay those down because we can trust that God is the one keeping count for us. And the Bible teaches that not only is God see and know and care about every single wrong that's been committed against you, not only does it teach that, it teaches that he is compassionate and just. And one day, or every single sin will either be justified because of the gracious justice of God poured out onto Jesus on the cross, or it will be justified because of the righteous justice of God poured out onto sinners 
on the day of judgment. And we can rest in that. We can rest in our God who is and, and, and forgives people who sins against us. Only then can we walk in the life that Jesus died to give us. Because you know what the opposite of forgiveness is? Bitterness. And just like we talked about how living in debt robs you of freedom in other areas of your life, living, holding others' debt over you, over them for the way they've wronged you, it will rob you of freedom in the rest of your life, in other areas of your life. Because when you're bitter, you can't afford to trust anyone. And you live your life just guarded, walls, never fully present because in the back of your mind you're wondering, when is the bottom going to fall out? Holding on to the debt that other people owes is the exact same thing as living in like financial debt. And, and church, the good news of the gospel is that the healing that you need for the wounds that you have can only be found in Jesus. Jesus says, living life for and with God is living life under the rule and reign of a king who settles accounts. A king who's merciful and and who's compassionate. A king who absorbs in himself the punishment that we deserve for an unimaginable, unpayable debt. And so, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Let me pray for us and then we're gonna respond by taking communion together. If you are volunteering for communion, if you can go ahead and head to the back, I'm gonna pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy to us, even in a a text as difficult as this. Pray God that you would be present with us in these next few moments, we need you. I pray specifically for the folks in the room who who are struggling with the tension of releasing to you the the harm that's been caused to them. God, would you comfort them? Would you remind them in these few moments as we celebrate the table together that you are trustworthy? Help us, God. We need your help. Would you uh, be with us in these next few moments? We pray this in Jesus' name.